Hey, podcast family. It is late in the evening. Actually, it's nighttime, let's be honest, on November the 30th, 2023. Now, earlier this morning, we released our regularly scheduled episode that I knew was coming out. We had worked on before, and so that made its airtime this morning. And as I've said before, it's not usual that I release two podcast episodes in a day. That's usually not our thing because my team really does not like to do that. But something came out just this evening in the Green Journal that's out ahead of print that I have to share with you all. If you all remember, back in July the 30th of this year, we did an episode called The Rule of 55. And it had a large, large response because the majority of these comments were, Hey, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't really heard about that. I can't believe that that's not really taught more. Called the physiologic approach to hypertension, right? Now, if you have not heard that episode, you've got to go back and listen to that. Like, I'd probably stop this one and go back and listen to that one. Because this new article that's coming out in the Green Journal under the heading Research Letter deals with exactly this issue. Now, it's not a prospective study, it's not an RCT, it's a retrospective review, but it's by authors that I find absolutely fascinating and wonderful. And one of them we've talked about a lot uh, in past episodes, which is uh, Alan Tita, a fantastic uh, MFM physician, all right? So Allison Davis et al. Um, publish are publishing this research letter, the title of which is Physiologic Treatment of severe hypertension in pregnancy and postpartum. Guys, how crazy is this timing? Now remember, we talked about this in July and now coming out officially out in print, still pending, but out ahead of print today on the 30th, there's a new research letter or retrospective study that sheds light on this issue of the Rule of 55. However, there's some really good stuff that we found in this publication, and there's other stuff that has to be clarified because it's still a little gray, all right? Now, just to be clear, before we get into all the data, um, you know I'm a fan of the physiologic rule of hypertension that goes back to Michael Foley and his uh, explanation and vast publications that have said that we've got to look at hypertension with the systolic and diastolic and what those numbers are doing called the physiologic response, whether it's high output or hyperdynamic uh, hypertension or peripheral resistance hypertension. And that should really guide uh, guide us and, and um, gauge our treatment, okay? So we've got a lot of data on that. You can go back in our, our reference list and see all of those publications because it's, it's pretty legit. But this publication, while it still has some value in supporting that, also leaves room for some gray zones. And we're going to get into that in this episode. There's also a big difference in this publication coming out and what Mike Foley et al. and others have been advocating for, which is what is the actual definition of physiologic hypertension? Because Remember, the most traditional is the rule of 55, where the systolic and diastolic difference is 55 millimeters mercury, more or less. If it's more, it's hyperdynamic. If it's less, it's vasoconstrictive. But that's not how Tita et al. and Davis et al. uh, uh, explained it in this new publication. So we're going to get into this. I just found it so fascinating that we had to get this out today, even though we had an episode out earlier this morning because we've talked about this so much and hypertension is such an important topic. 
uh, in pregnancy in the postpartum interval because of its related morbidity. So uh, I just couldn't let this go. So I called the team up and, and once again, kudos to them. They're like, yeah, you, tur- you do it, you turn it in and we'll fix it and put it together so we can get it out uh, ideally tonight. That's the plan uh, before midnight on Thursday Uh, November the 30th. So uh, let's cover this brand new uh, released, I want to tell you all, two hours ago (laughs) in the Green Journal under research letter by Allison Davis et al. and and Alan Tita uh, that covers this physiologic hypertension. And and we're going to tell you what they found and why I love it and why I'm a little disappointed in it. Let's cover this research letter right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves really fast. This is Clinical Pearls. All right, so it's no secret I'm a big fan of the Rule of 55. I think Mike Foley is a rock star and uh, out of Arizona. And I, I've learned this so uh, so long ago and it keeps getting reinforced in the data and in the literature that we should really be picking our antihypertensive medications based on the physiologic state of hypertension, all right? That's called the rule of 55. And I've mentioned that I think we've done so much on hypertension recently, right? I mean, doesn't it seem that way? Well, and we have. And again, rightfully so. It's a big cause of morbidity, mortality, stroke, renal failure, um, uh, um, brain bleeds of uh, various types, of course. So this this is a a, a big issue. So I'm glad that uh, Alan Tita et al. you know put this this retrospective study together because more data, more info that we get regarding this um, is super helpful. Remember that for the urgent management of hypertension, ACOG says, look, you can do IV lobetalol, you can do IV hydralazine. You can do PO nifedipine. Those are our typical uh, in our armamentarium of how we approach urgent hypertension, traditionally considered greater than 160 over 110 in pregnancy and in the immediate postpartum interval. That's not new. We all get that. The whole thought process behind physiologic approach to hypertension is that if we realize how the the body is functioning, right, if it's a high output, aka hyperdynamic um, hypertensive state, then we need to give the patient something that at its core, at the root, can address it, aka uh, hit uh, the contractile tility force of the heart. So that's where labetalol comes in. Uh, or take away some of the uh, volume, like uh, where Lasix comes in to take away some of the preload. And if the rule of 55 does not apply, if the delta of the change between systolic and diastolic is less than 55, then physiologically, that's an increase in, in peripheral um, resistance, systemic vascular resistance. We need to give a peripheral vasodilator. That's where uh, procardia comes in, and that's where hydralazine comes in, because even though hydralazine works centrally, uh, its effect is peripheral vasculature, right? Very simple. So that's the idea that um, one of the ways that we can prevent escalation of medications and giving the patient exposure to polypharmacy is that if we can figure out what the delta is, then choose the right medication, then we're going to prevent escalation of doses and reduce the overall number of medications given. Very simple. Well, that's exactly the objective of this new study that's coming out and why 
uh, Allison and uh, Alentita put this paper together. All right. Now, this was a retrospective review. So that's remember, that's, that does have some limitations, of course, not a prospective study, not an RCT. But it, once again, it, it, it's going to give us a lot of information here, some super helpful, some very gray. And I'm going to explain why it's gray in just a minute. So the premise here is super easy. Using a retrospective cohort study of pregnant and postpartum patients that were within six weeks of delivery who had all had severe blood pressure, all right? It, the, the review is super easy. Does giving medications based on the rule of physiology, all right? Well, I call the rule of 55 based on Mike Foley's work, and I didn't coin that. That's his term, which has been around the literature for a long time. You can look at our reference list from July the 30th for all that data. Um, it, but, but this retrospective review said, let's see if that actually works, all right? Now, bear in mind that this is not the first time that this is being looked at. There's plenty of data that says... This makes a lot of sense. And remember our mantra here, guys. Can it hurt following the rules of 55? Uh, no. And can it be helpful? Uh, yes. <laughs> so you can choose whatever. I mean, if, if we remember on the oral boards, that's always a great question is how do you choose what medication to give? Oh, I give everybody labetalol. Um, okay, that's not wrong. ACOG says that's okay. But can you have some thought process behind that? Because <laughs> if you give everybody labetalol, um, there's no re that, that explains why. And it's no brainer why the reason is why you're having to give escalating doses of medication if it's in the wrong physiology. Does that make sense? So labetalol would be better for a high output cardiac state. Whereas if the patient really has an increase in peripheral uh, vascular resistance, maybe you're definitely going to get there, but it's going to take you multiple doses to do that. Does that make sense? So rather than memorizing, oh, I give everybody a little all, or oh, I give everybody hydralazine or PO, nifedipine or whatever, maybe we should be tailoring, tailoring it to the physiology, to the state of the patient. Uh, and that, this was the whole purpose of the study. It's very easy. Let's, let's see if that actually is a thing. All right. And so they looked at the at this cohort with one big caveat. All right. Here they defined the the rule. Remember, traditionally, it's the rule of 55, where systolic and diastolic has a difference of 55. And that would apply between either high output or increased peripheral system, uh, systemic resistance. But they used the delta between systolic and diastolic, not of 55 guys of 65. Okay, so those patients with a pulse pressure of 65 were considered to have hyperdynamic physiology and were classified as having a hyperdynamic uh, hypertensive state. So that's one of the caveats here is that most of the data uses 55, not 65. So I'm not sure how that affects um, the results here. I mean, obviously, if it's a delta greater than 65, it's definitely uh, hyperdynamic. So you're going to catch all of them. That makes sense. But by raising that delta from 55 to 65, is that potentially uh, um, misplacing some uh, or wrong classifying some who have peripheral vascular resistance? Does, does that make sense, guys? So if you're going to use a pulse pressure of 65, those are definitely hyperdynamic because a, a pulse pressure difference, a delta between systolic and diastolic of greater than 55 is definitely high output. But remember, that pulse pressure, when it's very narrow, uh, and, and 55 isn't even narrow, but I mean, it's pretty close. So like a systolic of 160, diastolic of 110, that difference is 50. That would imply 
uh, increased peripheral vascular resistance or clamp down peripherally and that's giving them hypertension. But but the, the concern is that if we raise that number to 65, are we are we missing some are we classifying some patients incorrectly uh, as peripheral vascular resistance when they may be high output failure? Does that make sense? So you're definitely gonna catch the high output state by raising that delta to 65. That's fine. But you may be misclassifying some that have uh, peripheral vascular resistance because you've now increased that threshold from 55 to 65. Um, and so that's one of the caveats here that may gray the data. I hope that makes sense. If not, you got to go back to June 30th uh, and then it'll make sense then. But the idea is, is that if you raise that threshold from 55 to 65, that, that could alter some, some of the findings and that explains that gray zone that I'm about to tell you here in just a minute. All right, look, um, that makes sense to my head because I've been talking about this for a long time uh, and I've been following the rule of 55 for years. So if, you, if that doesn't make sense, send me a message. Remember, don't send me a message on Facebook, even though I still check that. I'm trying to go to Insta. I'm trying to move them over. Uh, it's a really slow move, guys. We've got like a lot of followers on our Facebook page, which I'm super thankful for. Uh, but, and we're like dragging on the Insta cause you guys aren't coming over. So, uh, and I'm not sure why I'm actually doing, I'm doing that because you all wanted me to move over. My team said, well, you got to get with the times and move over to Insta. Uh, and it's a slow fill of the boat. Anyway, uh, my point is send me a message on Insta and, and, and I can clarify that more if you need to. But, uh, so greater than 55, yes, you're all going to catch. That's fine. If you move to 65, that's all high output. But the fear is, is that you're classifying some who would normally be considered high output, right? By a delta of say 56, that's that you would say, oh, they're high output. But by raising that up to 65, um, you're leaving them with a diagnosis of peripheral vascular resistance, all right? So in other words, if you change the number up, the delta to 65, you are, um, you're, you're, you're definitely decreasing the number of your high output state and you are increasing the number artificially of your peripheral vascular resistance, okay? So that's the big deal. Do you see that, right? So more than 55 high output. So if you can't move that up to 65, you're still going to get the high output numbers, although you're artificially going to lower those while at the expense uh, or, or at the benefit of increasing the number of, of peripheral vascular resistance that may actually have high output hypertension or hyperdynamic state according to the rule of 55. All right, so let's go back to this uh, new research letter, this new publication. So they called high output hypertension, those with a pulse pressure of 65, all right? Now, for those that they called uh, peripheral vascular resistance, it wasn't in the number less than that. It was in those who had a diastolic uh, blood pressure of 100 or more. So you see how it's a little different. So the rule of 55 is super easy. Uh, systolic and diastolic, uh, do the math, just one minus the other. If it's greater than 55, high output. Less than 55, vasoconstrictive. Here, their definition of hypertensive physiologic uh, disease is, is pulse pressure of 65 for high, high output or diastolic pressure alone of 100 being vasoconstrictive. So, so A, the first take-home point, guys, here it is, because I already realized I've gotten long-winded because you all want to know what time I'm taping this, let me just tell you. Uh, it's 10 p.m. Central Time. 
I've had a whole day. <laughs> but I couldn't wait. I got to get this out because tomorrow we're late. Okay, and our, 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 our motive here, our desire is to get this thing literally hot off the press. And I know Mike's going to do this. Uh, like at midnight, uh, although I, I, I begged him to get this out sooner than that. Uh, so, hence the, the the rambling, all right? All to say, do you see how uh, they, they kind of have a different approach here to the definition of physiologic hypertension? So, clinical pearl A, or number one, is great. Now they're talking about physiologic approach to hypertension. I love it. I'm all in. I'm in. I'm digging it. Uh, number two or letter B, uh, it's kind of different than the rule of 55. Y'all see that, all right? So when you read this, um, just know that those those caveats, and I'm all for the simple rule of 55, uh, you, you know, just greater than 55 is one thing, less than 55 is the other, which is different than what these authors did. The primary outcome of this study was the number of antihypertensive doses received from the first severe uh, BP. All right. So the primary outcome was number of antihypertensive doses received um, to bring the blood pressure down. Okay. So very, very simple. And then the secondary outcome was conversion to alternative medications to get that blood pressure down. So in other words, how many doses did you get to get that pressure off severe? And did you have to switch to another type of medication? That's how they're going to define this, this approach to physiologic uh, hypertension to see if this thing works or not. All right, the short of it is they included 1,120 patients and 58% of those, that's 653, actually got medication based on their physiology as described here. All right, so let's call it what it is, just over half, all right? And 41% received non-physiologic treatment, which makes you think, um, I wonder if those who got physiologic treatment just happened to get it by chance or if there was actually some thought process there by the provider, the intern, resident, whatever, attending, a midwife to say, oh, they're in a hyperdynamic state. I'm going to give them labetalol or I'm going to give them Lasix to decrease their preload. Remember, this also included postpartum patients. So that, that's what we, we don't know that. But 58% received it based on their on this definition of these of these authors of physiologic hypertension, either delta of 65 as high output or a diastolic of 100 as vasoconstrictive. Fine. Well, what did they find? Well, very clearly, physiologic treatment was associated, quote, with fewer antihypertensive doses to achieve a non-severe blood pressure. End quote. Great. All right, so let's stop there. Let's call it a day. We're not going to call it a day because we haven't gotten to the great part. But they're like, all right, cool. Physiologic treatment, guys. Well, even though it's not the rule of 55, it's 55-ish. Yeah, they got less doses. So already that's a win for me. That is that to me, if I was Michael Foley, I'm like, aha, vindicated. I told you so. But then it gets a little gray. While that outcome is already good. You get less doses of medication uh, to, to bring down your pressure. That's very, very reassuring. But here's a part that gets a little gray and leaves you, you know, kind of scratching your head a little bit. The gray part is because the time to get the patient de-escalated, the time for that pressure to no longer be severe, was actually similar between the treatment approach of physiologic approach or non-physiologic. 
so did you all get that? So the, the, the benefit is if you choose a physiologic approach as they described it, you're going to use less meds. So I consider that a win. But at the same time, according to this design, um, it, it didn't get down any faster. Right now, I, I still think that's a win, guys, because all right, so both of them are you, they brought down the medication physiologic approach or not? Both decrease the blood pressure. Let's say I'm just gonna throw out the number just to make it clear, even though it's, it's in this paper, you know, 10 minutes. Uh, both got there 10 minutes, but in the non physiologic approach, it took three times the meds to do it. That's not that's not ideal. Do you all see that? So on the plus is physiologic approach to hypertension, as they described it, decreased the dosages needed, although the time to resolution to de-escalate the patient was no different. Okay, that's why I said it was great. But it's great because of how they, they d- define the physiologic state of hypertension as, a, as we've already discussed ad nauseum. But before we leave this episode, because we're basically done here, here's the other plus and why I think this physiologic approach, again, is vindicated. That the the odds ratio, uh, the, the chance of needing to switch to another medication was significantly less in the physiologic approach. So if you're just, you know, throwing meds at a patient without looking at the physiology, even though you're going to take the same time to de-escalate, you may need multiple doses if it's not the right physiologic medication, and you may have to switch medications altogether. Do you see that? So again, I call this a win, even though um, uh, the author stated, hey, you know what? It, it, it's no harm. There was no complications by doing a physiologic approach. Uh, it did have benefits. But in the end of their uh, research letter, they state, quote, antihypertensive treatment of severe blood pressure based on physiology should be evaluated further in larger trials, end quote. And, and that's not a bad thing. I absolutely agree with that. But while we wait for those larger trials, can it help? Yes. And can the physiologic treatment of hypertension hurt? No. All right, podcast family, as we mentioned, the lower probability of switching meds based on the physiologic approach, that odds ratio was 0.48. My goodness, we are done. Our second podcast for the day. I promise I would not make this a habit for my team. Mike, thanks for putting this together. Let's get this out ASAP. And honestly, what I was, the next thing that we're supposed to do that I'm supposed to, unless I get bored and distracted, is uh, how how to best check for insulin resistance. And if you think, oh, that's easy. Hello, I get a fasting glucose. Yeah, well, that's terrible. Uh, And if the other one is, oh, I just check a fasting insulin. Well, that's good. uh, But also doesn't give you, has also has issues and doesn't give you uh, the m- most information, the most information that other tests can do. So anyway, I, I thought that'd be interesting. I may get may bump that topic if something else pops up. But anyway, that's the idea is to talk about the best way to check for insulin resistance um, in our PCOS patients. But for now, this episode is a wrap. So everyone, I hope you found this helpful. Again, that's coming out in the Green Journal uh, in print formally, um, but it came out ahead of print now about uh, like three hours ago. So once again, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you in another episode of Clinical Pearls.